the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when you think about your relationship with others, so much of how we view and see and relate and interconnect with others is based on the way that we view, relate, and understand God. And so much of the way we do that is based on our thought process, the way we we mentally construct our image of God, who we perceive him to be. And to a large effect, as my guest asserts tonight, the way we view God also has a profound impact on our physical, mental, and obviously spiritual health. How do we go about how do we go about better understanding the relationship between the way we view God or think of God and the way it impacts so many parts of our life? Well he tackles this very topic inside the pages of a new book called the God-Shaped Brain. Now, Dr. Tim Jennings is a board-certified Christian psychiatrist and master psychopharmacologist, voted one of America's top psychiatrists by Consumer Research Council for 2008, 10, and 11. And he is on the board of Southern Pacific Association and is in private practice in Tennessee. Joins us now to talk about the findings inside the pages of this new work, The God-Shaped Brain. And Dr. Jennings, a delight to have you on the program. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Ironically, Scripture says so much about this topic, and we tend to kind of just kind of gloss over it, don't we? I mean, in the, in the sense that we're told about bringing our thoughts into captivity. Um, we, we understand a lot about uh, the uh, the idea that we see, for example, in Philippians 4, 8, that whatever, the things that we think about. And so if that's true in so many ways, why is it that seemingly a lot of us, maybe not all, but, but many within the church, kind of had pretty significantly faulty thinking about God? Yeah, and, and that's a great point. I, I think the point you're making is, is great on several levels. One, science, brain science, is actually affirming uh, things that the Bible has said for thousands of years. And that's exciting to be able to, to look at the brain science, the brain research, and say, wow, the Bible was right 2,000 years ago. Without any CAT scans or MRIs or, or neurobiology, it was still right. Um, so why do people struggle with distorted ideas? Um, well, I think it has to do a lot with uh, innocent and inadvertent ideas that slowly uh, encroach over time as we take our human ideas and put them back on the Bible, rather than letting the Bible reveal itself to us. We hear things uh, such as um, folks that are out there in the world of, uh, of motivational speakers that talk about mind over matter, things of this sort. I mean, most definitely, science has found a very strong connection between the way we think or view things and our health, hasn't it? Absolutely, and everybody has probably heard of something called the placebo effect, and the idea that uh, if you get a uh, sugar pill but you believe it's a pain pill, that uh, you not only get pain relief, but brain science has now shown that if you believe you're getting a pain pill, your brain will actually release uh, chemicals called endorphins and keflins, which are brain-produced opiates or painkillers. So you actually get physiological brain change if you believe you're getting a pain pill. 
But if you are told you're getting a sugar pill and, uh, and uh, no longer believe you're getting a pain pill, the brain does not release the endorphins and enkephalins, so you don't get the pain relief. So something as simple as that, uh, when we have a change in belief about what's happening, there's physiological consequences that are different depending on what we believe. Medical science certainly understands this. I mean, for example, my mother, who's been a cancer patient for almost a decade now, when she was first under treatment by her oncologist, uh, encouraged her that very much how she viewed this particular battle with cancer, what her anticipated desire was in terms of the outcome, and her her mental viewpoint on the ability to, to get through all of this, meaning the chemotherapy, the surgery, so on and so forth, would play a major role on whether or not she was going to be able to be this disease or not. And I'm pleased to report that in the decade, uh, her, her mental viewpoint on all of this has been very good, very positive, and she's managed to um, be into full remission four times over in the last decade. So having said that, clearly those of you in the, the medical arena have seen a connection between the impact that our thinking has on our physical well-being. Why is it that we've kind of perhaps within the church lost the understanding or maybe failed to in the first place recognize the understanding that there's also a very strong impact between our relationship with Christ or the viewpoints that we have on God uh, based on maybe the, the impressions that we had as a child and the way we think of God. You know, I think something happened in uh, uh, several hundred years after Christ where the idea of God being the builder, creator, who constructed his universe to operate on design parameters or protocols, laws of health, laws of gravity, these, these construction protocols that nature operates on being God's law, that instead an idea that God was like a, a Roman emperor, a dictator, imposing arbitrary law, human-type law, really came into the uh, Christian thought process and Things changed, and you, you can see that history where in the early church was very self-sacrificial, but then suddenly the church went on the Crusades, and we had the Inquisition, and we would burn people at the stakes uh, for not believing the way. So methodology changed because this construct of God's law changed from protocols upon which life was built to imposed rules you better keep or else. Mm. And so with all of this, it has created, uh, to many degrees, passed down through the millennia, uh, in some camps, a distorted God construct, hasn't it, that, that as a result has subsequently significantly impacted everything from our, our physical well-being, mental well-being, as we mentioned a moment ago, to even our spiritual health as well as relationships? Absolutely. And what's, uh, what's uh, striking is that m- most Christians wouldn't um, dispute this idea if they're talking about a non-Christian, somebody in a Wiccan camp wor- worshiping, you know, white witchcraft, and these, they would say, oh yeah, that's going to be that. What's striking, though, is that within Christianity, within any, any individual church group, you can go into a group of Christians, and you can find some that worship a God of love who's benevolent and kind, as Jesus revealed him, but you can find some that are worshiping an authoritarian or punitive or distant or punishing God, and, and all within Christianity. And what we discovered is that viewpoint within the same religion actually has a different impact on how your brain functions and, and, and actually structurally changes the brain and ultimately your physical health. Right. From your position as a physician, where did you begin research into this arena to begin sort of connecting the dots, so to speak? Uh, of the connection between whether or not we have a healthy or a faulty and distorted, thus, uh, God construct in our minds, and then the ultimate impact that it has on not only, in in many respects, I guess, self-defeating behaviors and toxic relationships, but, but the aspects in which it touches every part of life. 
Well, I think it really started for me in my residency. When I started my psychiatric residency, um, I guess more than 20 years ago now, I um, was challenged by my faculty, who by and large didn't believe in God and kind of looked like historic psychiatrists often have, down on those who do look on God as somehow being, un- do believe in God as somehow being unenlightened in some way, and so they really challenged us, and we had to read the theorists like Freud and Jung and Adler and, and many of the, the theorists who don't have a great God concept, and uh, these ideas were very challenging for me, and I had the premise that, okay, I believe God is real. If he is real, then the evidence should support that. His, his, we should be able to find evidences that, that sustain God. God's word, and not have to simply say, "Well, I believe," and I'm, I'm just not going to look at any any evidence or facts. And uh, and so I started research 20 years ago into this to to identify the protocols, the evidences that were there, and it's been fantastic and, and rewarding and and validating to to discover that the Christian viewpoint is much more um, scientific, much more evidence based, much more reliable than a viewpoint that excludes God. Have you had a chance to see this play out in the um, in the patient relationship, in the sense that you've been able to notice differences in a patient's ability to respond to treatment? Uh, for example, uh, take two identical, generally identical sets of of uh, symptoms and uh, patients of about the same health condition, age, weight, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera find one who has a strong, positive viewpoint on God and on life, and then one who does not, and then be able to play this out at all in any even remotely scientific fashion to see the end results of, of the treatment process for those patients? Well, it, it, yes, and it even a little more subtle than you would suggest, believe in God or not believe in God. How about one that believes in a God of love? who is self-sacrificial and beneficent, and one who believes in a judgmental, punishing God, and one believes God is, is cares for them and wants to deliver them, and one believes God is actually doing this to them. Mm. See, that is even more striking. When people, and I have had patients come see me, and I talk about a young lady in the very beginning of my book who was quite depressed and distraught because she wasn't able to have children, and she was distraught because... Her pastor told her it was her fault, because when she was an adolescent, she'd gotten pregnant, had an abortion, and her pastor told her God was punishing her, and she would never be able to have children because of that. Mm. So this viewpoint of an angry, chastising God that is punishing her for past sins or mistakes, I mean, my goodness, you can see the manner in which that could impact every level of one's relationship with Christ and ultimately the way you, your, your belief system works. Yes, and, and, and neurobiologically, when you have those beliefs, it actually fires the brain's fear circuitry called the amygdala, which causes in your body the activation of your immune system, which kicks up inflammatory factors. And this chronic activation, if this continues, actually results in uh, increasing risk of obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart attacks, strokes. It reacts on the brain, increasing your risk of depression. I mean, this is very damaging to the, to the physiology to have chron- chronic fear and anxiety going, whereas if you come back to a knowledge of God as a God of love, when we fire the brain's love circuits, which is called the interesting of the cortex, they actually calm or shut down the fear circuitry. So just as the Bible teaches, 
perfect love casts out all fear. Neurobiologically, that's actually true. Mm, I want to go deeper on this, Doctor. You've just piqued my curiosity here. We see a connection between anxiety and fear, the way the patient reacts. And we all know what that's like. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a situation maybe in your financial life or at home or at work, and you're filled with fear and anxiety, and you're on edge constantly, and the bile's just right up there. And, and, and it seems like everything that you touch and come in contact with goes wrong and it doesn't go your way and it doesn't feel good and you just don't you just have that tremendously unsettling feeling about everything wonder how much of that can directly be correlated to your viewpoint or understanding of very god himself we're exploring that equation a look at the god-shaped brain how changing your view of god transforms your life Written by Dr. Timothy Jennings. He's with us tonight. We're going to get back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Timothy Jennings with us tonight. Look, the God-shaped brain. You know, it's interesting because we, we give mental assent to this around the, around the periphery. For example, um, we talk about... Philippians 4.8, a passage of Scripture that we are all very, very familiar with. Uh, Finally, brothers, whatever things are true and whatever things honest and just and pure, holy, lovely, so on and so forth, if they be of good report, any virtue, if they be any praise, think on these things. Why is God telling us to do that? Why are we encouraged to to meditate um, on the things of the Lord? Why are we told to bring every thought into the captivity of of Jesus Christ or put on the mind of Christ. Ironically, Dr. Jennings, we talk a lot about this issue of thoughts and the way we view things mentally. And yet when it comes to playing this out in reality, we've not seen perhaps the, or at least been willing to acknowledge that strong connection between how we view God or think of God and the way that plays out in every aspect of life, physically, mentally, spiritually. And I think part of the reason for that is somehow these ideas is entered into much of religion and Christianity that what happens in church is about your future eternal security. It's like it's like future life insurance. And so you get things taken care of for the future need by going through the proper rituals or accepting Jesus, but it doesn't actually have impact on our life today. Rather than realizing what we've shown in the book is that God has actually constructed his universe to operate in certain ways. And living in harmony with his design for life actually, as Christ said, that we might have life and have it more abundantly now. And there actually is a real-life consequence to living in harmony with God's design or deviating from that design that we experience here now. Let's talk a bit about some of the issues related to fear. We touched on this just before the break. Um, We know that there are certain chemicals that are produced in the brain when we are subject to circumstances or situations that either uh, increase anxiety in us or create a sense of fear in us, uh, that kind of a fight-flight reaction. If we view God with a sense of fear and trepidation, does that also produce that that kind of chemical reaction in the brain? Absolutely, and I, and this is what we've shown in in the in the uh, from the science and from the in the book is that this chronic fear activation is actually antagonistic to love. Love and fear are inversely proportional. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hit because they were afraid 
afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. And so there's actually, neurobiologically, there's this tension that sets itself up. The part of the brain where you experience, and when I use the word love, I'm, I'm uh, describing compassion, altruistic regard, self-sacrifice, beneficence. We're not talking erotic or romantic love. We're talking that, that brotherly love that one uh, loves so much they give their life for a friend, that kind of love. When Christ said, um, you know, uh, greater love is no man, they lay his life down for a friend, this kind of love means I care so much for you that I'll do whatever's for your best interest, including give my life that you might live. Many parents experience this love for their children, if their children are in some danger, they would easily step into that danger to protect their child. Well, that's at war with another principle that's driven by fear since Adam's sin that the scientists call survival of the fittest. I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including, if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. Love you, love you so much, I'll give my life that you might live. Love myself so much, I'll kill you that I might live. These are antithetical. Love versus fear. Fear drives us to self-protection and exploit and hurt others. Mm. This process then of beginning to recognize the impact that our thinking process, the way we view or react to God, a lot of it, of course, goes back to a childhood um, we often hear stories, uh, Dr. Jennings, of individuals, for example, who um, are introduced to the claims of Christ later in life and often struggle with the imagery of God as a benevolent, loving, protective, heavenly Father who would sacrifice his only begotten Son on our behalf. And we, we some people will reject that just absolutely out of hand because they grew up in a household where there was perhaps an absentee father or a you know drug-crazed, alcoholic, uh, driven, abusive father. And so the notion of being able to equate a loving Heavenly Father who sacrifices His Son on behalf of all of us that we might walk in relationship with Him is antithetical to their, to their manner of thinking. Yes, you're exactly right. And that is a barrier for some people. Our childhood experiences certainly can put obstacles in the way. And that's, of course, why we are called to be witnesses, uh, the hands and feet, so to speak, uh, God's uh, disciples and agents on earth, to love those individuals. And so they may not have experienced God-like love in their childhood, but they can experience God-like love in their adulthood from others who can still love them in spite of their shortcomings and anger and ultimately lead them to see Christ in us. We talk about this notion in Scripture of bringing our thoughts into captivity. How can we rewire all of this? Um, you know, this is a great point. And um, I, put, I point out in the book that the way the, the brain is designed is that the, the, there's a protein that is like um, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Brain-derived means the brain makes it. Neurotrophic factor is simply a factor that makes the neurons grow stronger. So think of it as neuro, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. When it's available, the neurocircuitry that gets it will actually sprout new connections. The brain will make new neurons and influence the proteins like this. But the, this particular protein doesn't come off of the DNA or isn't produced immediately in this form. It comes in a precursor form called pro-BDNF. And that particular um, protein is actually like weed killer for the neuron. If it binds to the neuron, it will actually uh, kill the dendrite, kill the axon, cause pruning back of the neural circuitry. And so the key issue is if there's, a, if there's an enzyme available that will cleave this, this weed killer into the fertilizer, then the neuron grows stronger. What determines whether you have this enzyme or not? And this is fascinating. It's the 
activity of the neural circuit itself. If you're firing the neural circuit, using it, it produces this enzyme. So ProBDNF, the weed killer, is cleaved into the fertilizer, and it grows stronger. The circuit grows. But if you're, if you're dormant, if you're leaving it inactive then and not using the circuit, then that enzyme is not produced, and the weed killer actually takes over, and you start pruning the circuitry back. And so imagine the situation of trying to study a new language in high school, maybe Spanish in high school, and you're studying brute force memory, and you keep practicing your firing this circuit, this new forming circuit, and this enzyme's produced, and you get more of the fertilizer, and it expands, and you keep doing it, and the circuitry grows. And then one day you graduate, and 20 years go by, and you haven't spoken the language for 20 years, and what happened to your ability and proficiency? It's been pruned back. Well, where, where every thought into captivity comes now, let's say um, we have somebody in their imagination imagining certain thoughts, like we can lock a pedophile up in prison so he can't act on the behavior. But can we control the imagination? No. And if you fire those thoughts in your imagination, you're still activating the circuit. You're still producing the enzyme. You're still growing the pedophilic uh, type of thinking stronger. And so the person may come out more recidivist pedophile than they went in if they're not bringing their thoughts into captivity. Hmm. So a lot of this has to do with the way we control and focus our thoughts. And again, that goes back to much of the the instruction that we've received, but sadly have never put it fully into practice within Scripture. So if we have been raised with a fearful viewpoint of God, um, and we know what the brain's reaction is to that, as much as the way we see the way the brain will react to, to violence and the numbing effect, oftentimes, for example, in children that spend hours on end um, viewing violent video games or, or television programs, and after a while it tends to kind of anesthetize them to the, to the reality of what they're really facing. Then mm-hmm. when they are exposed to real significant violence, they're almost uh, nonchalant about it because they've been anesthetized to all of this. So it, if, if then there has been a long process of training, so to speak, the brain to believe that God is someone to be feared and, and as a result um, has, has set up this boundary uh, that prevents us from able to enter into the kind of relationship that God wants with us or uh, the impact that it has on other relationships as we mentioned a moment ago, how do we retrain that process? Yeah, this is, uh, in our book we've introduced this idea of the um, integrative evidence-based approach. We have to be willing to look at evidence, and we've, and we've identified three threads of evidence that God has provided that when we harmonize all three, we can have a more consistent idea of the truth that God is trying to reveal. And the three threads are Scripture, all Scripture is given by God for inspiration, inspired by God is given for instruction, and so forth. Science, it says in Romans one twenty that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. We look into nature and science and experience, taste and see that the Lord is good. Scripture says, check me out, experience me. And if you separate the three threads, science without the other threads, without Scripture, is vulnerable to going into godless evolutionism. If you have experience without Scripture and science, it's vulnerable to mysticism, particularly Eastern mysticism, which is making huge inroads in America. And then Scripture alone without the other two. I don't know if you know, but the the Christian Encyclopedia currently identifies 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible supports their view. Hmm. And so without the other two anchors, we end up in confusion and disagreement and argument. And so bringing all three threads together, we can find a harmonized truth that reveals, and this is what the beauty, and this is what we've shown in the book, is that God is love. 
And that love, when you come back to a knowledge of God's love, it actually activates healthy brain circuits. It turns off the fear circuits. We have less anxiety, lower heart rates, lower blood pressures, lower uh, cholesterol levels. We have less risk of heart disease. We live longer. We have less risk of dementia. All these things happen when we come back to a knowledge of God, but we hold those other distorted concepts. We actually have more disease and, and we have more disability. There's so much about this business of putting on the mind of Christ and bringing our thoughts into captivity and focusing on him. Now, of course, the big key, if you've been eavesdropping on this conversation, um, as Dr. Janine points out in the book, insight doesn't always equal change. You have to take a proactive approach. And I would encourage you today, if you've been struggling with the distorted God construct, um, maybe it's time to put off that old way of thinking um, and and recognize that beliefs indeed impact uh, our physical, mental, and spiritual health and well-being. And so coming back full circle to meditate on Scripture, to bring our thoughts into captivity, and to, to imply or apply the, the, uh, the core, quite frankly, of what we're taught in Philippians 8 of what to focus on in getting back to God's Word and and reinventing, so to speak, the way we think of God and ultimately relate to Him uh, is one of the biggest keys to changing your view of God and then transforming your life. The book called The God-Shaped Brain, newly published, by the way, by InterVarsity Press, and you can get information on the web at comeandreason.com. That's comeandreason.com. And our thanks to its author, Dr. Timothy Jennings, for being with us on this edition of Life Live. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There's a lot of phraseology that is bantied about these days, uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, discrimination or racism or phobias of one sort or another. Um, added to this list, one that's not, um, not talked about much, but quite frankly, um, the reverberation of its impact is being felt more and more, especially in countries that uh, heretofore had been locations where um, faith, particularly of the Christian sort, had been celebrated. My guest tonight is a sociologist. In fact, he's professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. He's the author of a number of best-selling books and serves as founder of Reconciliation Consulting, helping churches and ministries develop and sustain a multiracial emphasis. His latest book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And uh, George Yancey, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me on. Doctor, let's talk first a bit about um, the phraseology here, the term that um, that you're using throughout the book, um, Christianophobia. Uh, help us understand exactly what that is. And, and, you know, as we think of phobias in general, there are anxiety disorders. Um, one definition tells us that they are uh, persistent fear, disproportionate to the actual danger posed. As you use the term, give us some definitions. Yeah, and, and I, my co-author of a previous book, really struggled with this. What do we call what we're seeing? What do we call what we're documenting? And, you know, I can't say that I'm completely satisfied with Christianophobia, but it's probably the best of bad choices. When we use phobias, the way we're using it in today's society, it's not just about fear. It's about anger. It's about bigotry, if you will, towards a certain group. That's Islamophobia, homophobia, so forth and so on. And... What we've documented 
fits into that category. For example, many of the uh, people that we uh, that we got information from that answered our questionnaire talked about Christians taking over instead of a theocracy and, and, and forcing everyone to become Christians, which we thought was nonsense, but these were well-educated people who had this sort of fear, an unfounded fear, an unfounded uh, anger. And so we settled on Christianophobia. Is it, is it perfect? No. But until I can find a better term, that's one I'll use. Okay. With that said, um, why not, um, I don't know, we, we hear of anti-Semitism. How about anti-Christian? Why specifically Christianophobia? I, I actually thought about anti-Christian uh, as, a, as a possibility, and, and it has some merit. One of the problems with using that term, I felt, was are you anti-Christian because of a fear, or do you just not believe in Christianity, and therefore, you know, uh, I don't... I don't agree with Christians. I'm, I'm anti-Christian philosophy or or, or theocracy or, or or theology or things of that nature. And so, it probably is my second choice, but I don't feel it's quite as good as Christianophobia. As we talk about it, let's um, perhaps get into some of the arenas where we're seeing this uh, begin to appear. I mean, to the degree to which it is. Um an attitude against people of faith, specifically Christians, that we've seen demonstrated in many parts of the world. We can certainly travel to many parts of the Middle East. We can travel to Islamic countries where not only is the Christianophobia uh, quite prevalent at many layers, it is um, not only accepted socially, but even institutionally, meaning it's endorsed by uh, governments, it's endorsed by the state church, in this case, Islam. But what about here in America? Um, We're beginning to see incidents of this, and while perhaps not reported on with any frequency on the 6 o'clock news, we're beginning to see increased incidences of this in academia, in politics, the government. Um, some of it seems to be kind of uh, casual and, and uh, covert, others more overt and, and even systematic. Why, why this trend, particularly in a country like the United States, who, whose very foundation was founded on the principles that ran contrarian to this notion of, of again, the anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia? Well, you know, at one point the United States was a society where, if not a Christian nation, uh, was dominated by a Christian culture. And to be against that culture was to put you on the outside. And so Christians had the dominant control of society, for good and for bad. Uh, I mean, sometimes Christians have used it, but they still had this control. What, what's happened is that we're becoming a more multicultural society, where Christianity is no longer the dominant religion, and where other groups now have gained a lot of power. And so uh, whether this has happened, you know, it's happened somewhat slowly, but we see accelerating at this point. Groups have gained power who never had power before, and the resentment that they had against Christians, they can now act out on them. Now, I would say that this is not the, obviously this is not the same thing as the Middle East. Uh, and these groups, uh, the people with Christianophobia, like to pride themselves on being religiously neutral, uh, on not being bigots themselves. And so they do something that has been noted in race literature, which I know now, which is they try to find an issue where they can justify it on non-bigoted grounds, and yet it still has a negative impact on Christians. So this notion, Doctor, that intolerance is uh, is never accepted, uh, but there are certain cases where um, the, the, the so-called tolerant are happy to be intolerant, provided that it's only directed toward certain groups. Well, they like to say they're intolerant of the intolerant, which, you know, doesn't make sense if you really think it through. 
but yeah, they, 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 there clearly is an intolerance. And in their, in their uh, social identity, they see themselves as well-educated, as tolerant. So it's, it's, it's very hard for, for, to point out how intolerant they are, because in their mind, they can't be intolerant because they are progressive, educated, whatever educative you want to use, uh, even though clearly we see that in Christianophobia. Are there those who are perhaps dismissive of the impact of Christianophobia uh, because it is different than many of the other types of phobias that are out there? And by that, I mean this, Doctor. Racism, I mean, uh, clearly an individual, they're, they're born of what they're born of. There's their birthright. Uh, they're, it's their racial makeup. Don't get much of a choice in that. Um, some might argue that even homophobia, based on behavior. But, but Christianophobia is an attack or an assault on an individual a sense of uh, of bias against that person based solely on what they believe, which kind of makes it unique in that case, doesn't it? Well, there's anti-Semitism and, and there's Islamophobia, which you could say is the same thing. So uh, so I don't know if it's unique in that sense. It may be more unique in the United States because you have a group that's been a dominant group that now is becoming a minority group, and uh, people are finding ways to attack them now that they don't have the power they once had. We're going to take a time out on that point and come back to more of our conversation today with Dr. George Yancey. He is professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. His new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. A brief time out, back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Dr. George Yancey, professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. The new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Why do we see this this growing sense of bias in the country today, doctor? Seemingly, um, what's the best way to phrase this? Um, Inconsistently applied. And and by that, I mean, uh, for example, if you have conversations with some people that demonstrate uh, a a clear uh, Christianophobia, they may not necessarily take objection to, I don't know, say a mainline denominational Methodist who opens a soup kitchen, and yet uh, they will rear their, 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 uh, their hackles when you talk about an evangelical running for political office, for example. Why does it seem to be inappropriately or 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 in, in not not consistently applied. Well, I think that those with Christianophobia they have a certain set of values and actions that they deem acceptable, and those that they deem unacceptable. And as long as Christians do that which is acceptable, then they don't face any of these pressures. That's when Christians vary from that which they see as unacceptable. Uh, and of course, some of the, some of the values uh, I think most Christians would be comfortable with, but others. Uh, especially more conservative Christians, uh, are not very comfortable with and are not willing to compromise their values. And that's where the conflict arises. So, you know, it's like, like anything else. I mean, if you, if you do what I agree, you know, should be right, then I don't have a problem with you. It, it, t- tolerance only comes into play when you start doing things I disagree with. And then, then we talk about tolerance. 
There's certainly a degree, I think, uh, in, in any, any culture, any society that has differing people groups coming together, whether you're of different uh, backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different religions, there can be degrees at which we don't always mix together that well. We don't completely understand the way each other thinks or, or functions, and so therefore the things that we don't understand, we tend to kind of uh, uh, create this, uh, this bias towards. Uh, so to the degree to which in this so-called melting pot experiment of America that there has been sort of this underlying uh, uh, pool of discrimination kind of lying low below the surface um, is is probably arguably there. That said, we've seen an increase, particularly in relationship to attitudes towards Christians in our country. Um, some might say to the point where it's becoming overt and systematic. Why do we see, is there anything to which in your studies points to the reasons why this rise in um, Christianophobia? You know, I would just say it's just a matter of, you know, that the sentiment has been there, but people didn't have the power to do anything about it. And now they have the power to do something about it. So, you know, perhaps in, in the past, people wanted to have some of these rules that would disproportionately hurt Christians, but if they tried to pass those sort of rules, they would have been slapped down. But now you can't pass those sort of rules. Uh, and so the way I would see it is it's a matter of power, that certain groups now have power to harm Christians, and they don't like Christians for for a variety of different reasons, and now so they are going to use that power. What about those that would argue that for there to be any demonstration of, of a true bias or discrimination, that you must show a loss of position or opportunity or, or favor tied directly to one's identity, and that some would argue, well, wait a minute, though. Most Christians in America uh, tend to live a privileged life. They really haven't suffered discrimination when it comes to uh, opportunities and employment and education and things of this sort. So where's the discrimination? Where's the bias? Okay, you know, that's a very interesting question. And having been someone to study race and ethnicity, uh, a lot of times people would ask, you know, well, we talk about blacks. Uh, I don't see a lot of overt racism towards blacks today, so where, where's, where's the problem? And so part of it is, you know, uh, you, we aren't going to see overt, you're a Christian, therefore I'm not going to do, do this, this, and what have you. I mean, it doesn't work that way in today's society because no one wants to be seen as biased. Having said all that, I did research several years ago when I uh, sent a questionnaire out to academics, and I asked them, if you knew that this person was belonged to this group, would you more or less likely to hire them? And the two groups that academics were less likely to hire, they found out the person belonged to was fundamentalists and evangelicals. Uh, with fundamentalists, about 45 to 50% of all academics that I surveyed said that they would be less likely to hire them. Evangelicals a little bit less, about 40 to 35%. I don't have the precise numbers in my head. So, there, now you have a situation where, while that, that, that evangelical feminist may not know it, he or she may have lost a job because someone did not want to hire them because of their religious beliefs. I, 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 can, I have anecdotes, but that is systematic evidence of anti-Christian bias and what that anti-Christian bias can mean in our society. All right, toward that end... It begs the question, and this is going to make some people feel uncomfortable, but I think we need to ask this question, particularly since you delineate a stronger degree of anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia 
towards uh, conservatives or evangelicals, is there a degree to which we have contributed uh, to some of this rise in bias? And I ask that question, uh, let's use an example that everybody's familiar with, Westboro Baptist Church, and I, and I hesitate to even refer to it as a church. We know from a traditional conservative evangelical Bible-based viewpoint that much of what they do is abhorrent. And yet they pull on the moniker of we do this in the name of Christ, we do this in the name of God, they claim to be uh, evangelical Christians, and so therefore uh, there, there is this label now that's associated. And I have to wonder, while this might be an extreme example, does any of the research, particularly as you talk to people that find a, an increase in their sense of negativity towards Christians, again, Christianophobia, that some of this, quite frankly, some of the culpability may fall on our own shoulders? Well, you know, I don't think you have to go as far as Westboro Baptist. Oh, even when we become Christians, we don't become perfect, and so we do sin, and we sin against other people. Uh, you know, having to say race, uh, there, there are sins Christians have done historically concerning racism, uh, and we can look at other problems. So, so Christians are not are not innocent in that they've been perfect, and, and now people are coming and attacking them. However, no group deserves all the prejudice that they that they tend to receive, and so. While, yes, Christians are not perfect, Christians have done some things where we've victimized some people, uh, the level of fear and hatred that I document in my research and that I talk about in, in this book does not match the, the problems that Christians have created. And so I talk about both in the book. I talk about how Christians have created some of their own problems. But that does not justify, for example, the discrimination that I just documented, I told you about, when it comes to academia. So it's sort of a it's sort of a both and approach. Yes, we need to get our act together as Christians, but we also deserve not to shut out the public square, which I think is the goal of people's Christianophobia, not to put Christians in jail, of course, but to uh, silence them so that they no longer have a voice in the public square. We understand that you know part of this is based on stereotypes, as you're suggesting, the, the notion that uh, Christians, evangelicals, are intolerant, bigoted, backward, hypocritical, self-righteous. I mean, on and on, the list of adjectives uh, goes, uh, goes. And yet I have to wonder, um, what can we, if we can't control their actions, what can we do to at least stem the tide or, or change some of the impressions that are out there that, as you point out, while perhaps the Westboro Baptist Church is on the extreme side of the continuum, but nevertheless, there, there is a sense, I think, perhaps, that uh, to a degree to which we kind of are contributory to all of this. And we know from a purely biblical perspective, yes, we're going to be hated and despised for his namesake. That said, are there things that we can and should be doing, particularly in a pluralistic society like the United States, that would help to stem the tide of Christianophobia? Well, in my book, I go into more detail on this, but in a nutshell, here's kind of how I see it. We're not going to be the most powerful religious group for some point in time, for, for who knows how long. But we still have a right to have a voice in the public square. So I believe we have to fight for that voice in the public square. On the other hand, we're going to have to perhaps overcome some of our differences to sort of unite, to, sort, to, uh, to work together uh, so that we can protect each other. We're going to have to go into some of the cultural areas, uh, art, uh, entertainment, academia, where we've not been in order to influence in that way. I think it's a long-term project to accept the fact that we're not going to be the dominant group, but we have a voice, and we can grow as a group if we are careful. Uh, 
you know, if we, if we can uh, penetrate some of the cultural institutions, if we can keep our own communities and keep our own values, it's going to be a long, hard project, but, you know, with the grace of God, it's doable. And as you mentioned, uh, we've just kind of um, skimmed the surface of this very deep topic. You can go deeper inside the pages of this new book, Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through uh, many of the uh, usual suspects and Amazon.com and George Yancey's website, simply George Yancey, Y-A-N-C-E-Y, George Yancey. Dot com. And Professor Yancey, thanks so much for the time and the insight. Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.